what a, what a good testimony to hear. So Psalm chapter 16, uh, as has already been noted, uh, there's many varying relationships that people have with lines. And I love this, this psalm because it does carry such a clear and uh, palpable picture of dwelling in the land. And the picture, as you notice here, it's an ancient boundary. The scripture has a lot to say about the boundaries. The Proverbs talk about, do not move the ancient boundary. It warns that God's, God's wrath will be poured out for those who try to meddle with boundary lines, those who try to, to, try to move things in their favor. And the idea, if you think about it, if you own a property and you have the property line there, and you see that it would benefit you maybe to just move that property marker over a couple feet. And your neighbor's not watching. Why not, right? There's a sense, if I could only get a couple more feet, I could fit more crops or whatever. Have your lawn bowling, you know, court set up there. Whatever you have in mind, the temptation for each of us, whether we're dealing with physical property lines, ancient boundary markers, or spiritually, truly, as is Psalm 16 is going to show us that spiritually the temptation is going to want to move the boundary line in one way or another to benefit ourselves in the way that we think it will be most comfortable for us, right? And who doesn't want more relief? Like, who wouldn't long for more comfort in this world? Who wouldn't long for more riches or wealth or health or you name it? All of us. I mean, if I had to raise a hand, it's better all of us, right? We would all certainly want more appreciate more, more space in our property. But that's not ours to choose. And just as the, the landmarks are ancient, they've been placed, they were there long before, long before the current landowner, I think the same could easily be said of you. Your boundaries, I think Psalm 139 would tell us this, that before these came to exist and to be in this planet, before you existed, God had written in his book the number of days. God had already pre-recorded your life, your times, your existence, and the property lines. So in one sense, we could easily say, your life has ancient boundary lines that God has placed. Is this too loud? I feel really loud, and I'm knackered. Term- there we go. I am a loud dude, so... Uh, if you're having problems with the loudness, just go like this, because I will, I, I will try my best to be self-controlled. I mean, if, I know, if, I, if I'm thinking I'm loud, it must be loud, you know? You know what I mean? Like, you don't think you're loud. Like, my wife constantly is telling me, will you shh? Like, kids are upstairs sleeping or whatever. Like, she th- like I'm thinking I'm just, like, excitable or whatever. No, I'm really loud. Um, anyway. And I've passed that trait on to my dear daughter, Chloe. Where is she tonight? Where's Chloe? There she is. She and I share that. We're so loud. And it just comes so naturally to just exposit the glories of life with the loudness of our voices. All right, anyway, moving on. I'm, I'm way off here. So the, the boundary lines, the boundary lines that God has, if we could say it from the, from the get-go here, they are ancient. God has written, declared them, written them in this book long before you came to exist and be. So where you are today... Where you are in this moment, like that, that map at the mall, you are here, the star. You are here. You're exactly where the Lord has you. He placed you there, and we could great, find great confidence there. Now, when we 
hit the boundary line. Certainly the temptation, the flesh rises up with it where we can be tempted to not understand the purpose of this limit. Just to a boundary line. You might be walking in the forest, right? Beautiful fall day. You come up against a wall, a fence that's blocking the path and the direction you want to go. What do you do? What's the temptation? The temptation is to feel like this is obstructing my path. Of course it is. I had a perfect path set up, and I'm looking at all the fall colors, and they're going that way. But this wall pr- pr- protects that beautiful way from me. This is unfair. This is unkind. What's the purpose of this? Other than to make me have to now re-navigate and figure something out because it's a dead end, right? A line, a boundary, a limit is a dead end to our ambition, to our desire, to our plan, right? And it can be very frustrating. It can even be heartbreaking. We apply this to this many aspects of life and loss where we had hoped or planned on a certain aspect of the land that God gave us to continue on. God actually removed that part of our property. The loss we have to our relationships when loved ones pass or, or things go a direction we were not expecting sideways when we were hoping it would go straight ahead into the beauty of the fall colors. And when those moments happen, it can be even heartbreaking. But that's not the biblical, the righteous, or the life-giving perspective on boundary lines because, again, David's going to draw us. There's an entirely different biblical take, a healthy take and perspective on the limits that God brings, those limits that, 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 that create a ceiling for my autonomy, right? They, they create a ceiling for my freedoms of comfort and ambition. They create boundary lines that I am now constricted and if I learn, if we learn as believers to find freedom of Jesus Christ in the constriction in which He has placed you, you are not autonomous, right? We're not, not one of us. We're all under the authority of God. And it was the hand of God and His great authority that drew the lines in which your life happens to be shaped right now. His authority, His purpose, His kingdom, His will, your will, Lord, be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? That is God's purpose. So the, the, the healthy perspective is not the world's typical feelings about lines. It's not the world's typical approach. The line says the world are bad for us. Boundaries and limits are downright unfair, unhealthy. No one should tell me what I should do or not do, what is good or bad for me. Boundary lines are no good. Limits, limitations are no good. And that certainly is the world's counsel and the world's feelings And their approach to lines, their approach to limitations, their approach to constriction, to be under the authority of God. That's the world's attitude. Psalm 16, we're going to see a very different picture. David's response is one of rejoicing, confidence, and satisfaction. You, by the grace of God, together, sisters, we will have confidence, rejoicing, and satisfaction as we grow very comfortable to be in the skin in which God placed us, in the boundary lines, the lives and relationships in which God has placed us, in the world He has placed us, in the time He has placed us. All these things. As we grow confident in the grace and the goodness and the wisdom of God, we will rejoice and we will be satisfied. That is the promise of Psalm 16. And here's there's so many things we could mine from this text, but we're going to have one theme. We're going to limit ourselves in the spirit of lines. I'm going to self. Boundary lines to my sermon. One theme, it's this. Receive the Lord and His boundaries as your only good, and you will receive life with joy. Receive the Lord 
and his boundaries as your only good, and you will receive life with joy. So we're going to survey a quick survey of Psalm 16. We're going to march through this. Uh, and I believe David's going to show us, really, it's, it's a guide, a, a travel guide of sorts around the boundaries of your life. David is going to walk you by the hand around the property. He's going to show you what to look for, watch, what to watch out for, and how to trust and to know the goodness of God in the land of the living. So let's do this together, okay? So we're going to take a short hike, and the first point on our hike is verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to read whole psalm first, and then we're going to focus in on verse 1 and 2. So look with me in Psalm chapter 16. Read, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall be shaped. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why don't you pray with me here? Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves under your mighty hand and under your wonderful word. This is a sharp sword. Divides between soul and spirit and reveals the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Holy Spirit, we want to welcome you to perform surgery tonight, to cut deep. Lord, to show us the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, to show us that in God alone, good. And Lord, that we would believe that with all of our heart and our lives would match our belief. That what we believe we would then pursue with all of our might, Lord, with all of our calendar, with all of our cash, with every ounce of our being, we would follow Christ. And Lord, help us heal areas of weakness and struggle and sin and idolatry. And Lord, strengthen our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to take a first step here in our journey and our little travel around the property. And it's a necessary first step. That's verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it again. It says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So this psalm begins with a prayer. It's a first step in this journey, right? It's a and then it goes to verse 2, which is a declaration about God or to God. And these two things, a prayer and then a declaration, set the tone and the content of the rest of the psalm. So first, let's look at the prayer. David's pure and very simple prayer. I mean, so pure and simple. Preserve me, O God. For in you, I take refuge. This is the only prayer request in the psalm. The only thing David asks of the Lord. The rest of the psalm is either describing reality, for good or for worse, or praising the Lord. But this is where he makes a request. So what is David signaling to us 
in this opening prayer, in this request from God. Well, the truth that David's signaling is this. Sanity and human flourishing fully and always depend on a right perception of my personal need, my dire need, and God's greatness to fulfill every need. Those two truths absolutely led to all of our reality. All of life, all of joy, all of human flourishing depends on you seeing accurately that you are desperate and dire and fragile and sinful. And at the same time, seeing the greatness, the glory, the goodness, the all-sufficiency of God. Those are the two things you need to know. Absolutely rock bed. That is the first stone in this path. Absolutely. If you don't get that, you will not meet the path rightly. You will miss the path altogether. You won't see the trail mark. You'll skew off into poison ivy and worse. Off a cliff. But if you see these trail marks, very clear. You are sinful. You are frail. You are weak. And God is infinitely good, great, and He is a refuge. If you get those two things right, we're good. We're going. We're walking. And that's, that's pure. I'm right here, David's pure and simple prayer signals this for us. We cannot receive life and joy. We cannot identify our need, greatness, and provision. You will not be happy. You will not live a life of joy if you cannot identify your need in God's greatness and His provision. That is a very important first step. So if David were at all confused or unclear about his deep need, this psalm wouldn't exist. He wouldn't have written this. It would have failed him. The words would not have come to him. They would not have flowed out of his heart in a pure and simple prayer. Because if, God, if David didn't feel his profound need, feel his sinness, he wouldn't have cried out. It wouldn't have come out. Preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I have taken refuge. And similarly, if, if David were at all confused or unclear about God's greatness and God's ability to preserve and protect him in his great need, this either because David would be off trying other things. David would be rushing to and fro for relief, for comfort, for escape, for something to get out of the mess that, that drove him to cry out, preserve me. He would be looking for preservation elsewhere. He wouldn't be going to a half-baked God who could only do half-baked things for him. He wouldn't be trusting in the Lord if he didn't see clearly or if he was confused to God's greatness and God's ability to preserve and protect. So those two things are so important. But David here is very clear-eyed. He's very, he's very clear-eyed with faith and he has a vision of his own sinfulness and his need of... The, of the greatness of God, and out comes the prayer. Out comes the prayer. And secondly, out comes a pure and simple declaration. And I love this. This is verse 2. Look with me. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What a beautiful profession of faith. I have no good apart from you. That's the profession of David, the confession of his faith in this moment. And David goes so far as to state, I have no good apart from you. That is quite a statement. The exclusivity of this declaration, it mirrors many others in Scripture. I think of, for instance, uh, Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There's an exclusivity 
about David's faith. He understood it's God alone. God alone is as good. And God alone is to be trusted, and God alone is a good refuge. God alone. And I think of John 6.68, where Peter famously professes the Lord Jesus Christ when Jesus asks, who do you say I am? What does Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom shall we? You have the words of eternal life. It's exclusivity. That's what, that's what Jesus is for us. He's exclusive. You know, I think of when I was a kid, I don't know if you've heard this game. I'm sure you didn't play it. This is a boy game. So why am I bringing this up at a girls' meeting? But this is the illustration that comes to my mind. I used to play King of the Hill. Remember? Kay, did you play King of the Hill? Kay Lechner played King of the Hill, except she was Queen of the Hill. I bet you, you kind of bloody noses of the boys when they played, right? Well, King of the Hill, simple rules, one rule. You just get to the top of the hill, you keep your ground. That's it. And there's like a dozen boys, like literally knocking each other out. Like there were always bruises, always bloody noses. Some kid would go home screaming. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's what boys do. So I wasn't very good at it, but I would try my best to scramble to the top. And the, the rule of the game was simple. You get to the top and you stay. It was exclusive. I have exclusive rights. In the case, in case uh, example, she has exclusive rights to be queen of the hill. Right? To the, to the of all the young men. Right? But for me... And for boys, there was this sense of we wanted to rush the, to the top so we could be known as the exclusive soul king of that hill. And Jesus Christ, God in Scripture, shows us, furnishes us with so many reasons, so many persuasive reasons to say that He and He alone is all our good. Is it too loud? Turn it down, Tent more. Sorry. See, I need that. That's good. I'm going to preach it, you know? So Jesus has provided us with all the reasons to see that he is exclusive. And just as that I would fight to the top of the king of the hill, so Christ demands exclusive loyalty from us. There's only one Lord, only one Savior. And faith perceives these things and seizes upon God and refuses to allow anything else to even come close to the center of our heart, of our importance, of our desire, of our pursuit here in this world. As long as we live, faith seizes. It's a seizing thing. It takes hold. It will not let go. It absolutely is exclusive, demanding from Christ, Christ and Lord and Savior and King of the hill. So faith, and another way to say this, faith assesses everything in the world and declares everything else, every human relationship, every materialistic hope, every ounce of gold, every day of good health, absolutely everything else that can be named in this room. It declares all those things as nothing as bad Jesus Christ. That's what faith does. Seizes on Jesus and says, you alone, in you alone is good for me. You alone. Jesus goes as far as to offend us to show us his exclusivity. He says in Luke 14, 26, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own brother, I'm sorry, his own father and his own mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he us, offends us to drive home this very point. He will have no rivals. 
There will be no rival if we're going to know the joy and the life that he promises and the path of life that, Jesus, that, that David is showing us here. He's walking us to. So, sisters, I need to ask, do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Is he exclusive in your love? Is he above your husband? Is he above your children? Is he above your, your relationships in this world? Is he above your possessions? Is he above your, all the things that bring you content and joy and peace and a sense of security and identity and purpose? Is Jesus above those things? Everything. Do you love him, in other words? Are you able to say with David, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. That's the call of faith, the seizing of faith. If we're to put in the balance all the people, all the relationships, all the material stuff in your life, sisters, including your dreams and hopes in this world, anything you've entertained, would the Lord Jesus Christ clearly outweigh those things on the scale? And I would ask, and the Lord would call you to this, the scales of your heart, does Jesus outweigh them all by a thousandfold, by a millionfold? There's not even a second place. Not even. Not worth mentioning. Dust on the scales. May the Lord help us. Because this is the first and the necessary step of the path of life to receive life with joy in God. So, the Lord and His boundaries is your only good and you will receive life with joy. This brings us to our second Second point in the journey as we walk around the property, the first thing is, is we need those first steps, right? We need those necessary steps to find the path. Now that we're on the path, Lord willing, we're on the path. It's this path that David describes here in verses 3 and 4. It's not a path of tulips of roses and sunshine at 74 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not. I mean, maybe sometimes, but it's not. There are precarious things along this path that must be discerned and must be avoided. We have to be discerning, sisters. You have to exercise godly discernment over this life and over all of its demands and pressures and desires. You've got to look at them full in the face, put them in the balance, and have Jesus absolutely launch them into the sky because of how much weight Jesus puts on the scale. Can you see that? Boom! Launch it! That's... What we need to see, we need to think that rivals Christ. So as one might expect, to know the Lord, to follow Him, requires courage, requires deep commitment, requires discernment, up and against many odds and against opposition. And that certainly is not, the Lord has not left us unaware. The, uh, any cursory reading of the Gospels, you will find full agreement that the statements of Christ in regards to the cost of following Him, you will see time and again how precarious this path is, how difficult the call to follow Jesus is. And what David does here in verses 3 and 4, he brings us to the dangers of the slope of syncretism. Syncretism. I'll, I'll define that in a moment. It's a side path. I'll, I'll describe what it is. It's a side path that seems to go the same way as the path of life. It seems to do the trick. It seems to go in the same direction, carry forward to progress, to peace and joy. But David shows us in verse 4 the painful result of this false path that mimics the true path. He says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So what is syncretism? It in the case of Israel, they, they literally had household idols. They kept many 
Many idolatrous Israelites had idols in their homes on little altars. And they would use them, utilize them faithfully during the week. And then during their weekly Sabbath, they would then gather to the worship of Yahweh. And then during the great Jewish festivals, they would go to, to Jerusalem and shout, Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. But then the rest of the week, the rest of their time, they, they compromised, they syncretized, they tried to blend Yahweh with false Canaanite gods. That's syncretism. It's a puree. It's blending. They tried to get the best of both worlds. They tried to get the blessing and the identity of being Israel under Yahweh, while at the same time receiving the local protections and all the social connectivity a Canaanite god or goddess would promise them. It's, it's like in the mind of the syncretist, it was a matter of spiritual pragmatism. They went about life, whatever seemed to work for them, whatever seemed to bring them joy or happiness or peace or, or to bring comfort and to bring some relief from the pressure they were feeling, well, that's what they would add to their worship of Yahweh. It's very pragmatic. Oh, this makes me feel better. I'll try that. We'll add this to my little mixture, my puree of gods. If a little Baal or Ashtaroth or Dagon or Chemosh might help the cause of finding a little help in the world, what's the harm in that? Doesn't Yahweh want me to be happy, right? You don't have to go very far to imagine what is God's attitude, His response to this, this kind of syncretism. We don't have to go far at all. The first two commandments, you know them. What are they? Number one, who's got it? What is it? That's the great commandment. Those are the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. I'm sorry. First two of the great commandments, the Ten Commandments. Who's got it? No other gods before me. What's the second one? You shall what? I see a lot of moving lips. No one's like willing to commit. Yeah, you shall not make, you shall not make for yourself the carved image, right? You shall not make idols. The two commandments are the first two of the ten, top two, right? Those two have very clear statements about syncretism. They make it very clear. God is not hiding this from us, that it is absolutely evil to try to puree God with anything. God with anything. Jesus with philosophy. Jesus with anything. You Jesus, you are committing one of the great commandments. You are breaking those commandments. And there should be no Christian heart that feels a tolerance towards worldly philosophy or psychology that attempts to blend a bit of the world and the worldly values with the God and what He has said. We have to be resistant to discerning. There has to be a rising in our hearts to say, nope, nope, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to live in that way, in that path. It's a false path. So what's the result of this kind of syncretism? Well, David tells us in verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. The result of this, the net result of compromise and syncretism will be an increase of sorrow and pain, of chaos and spiritual suffering that inevitably bleeds even into physical suffering. Psychosomatic problems are the result of syncretism in many cases. I recall the testimony of the British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, you might be familiar with him. He was a preacher during the uh, last century, a little before, during, and after World War II. This, this man was a faithful preacher of the gospel, a preacher of God's word. But before he was a preacher, he was a medical doctor. He was trained and practicing in England. And after his conversion, he began to see firsthand the underlying problems that led to so many physical sicknesses. He, he, what, and that led him, actually to step into the full-time ministry. He realized 
and he confessed. He's like, these people need, they don't need a medical doctor. They need a soul doctor. They need the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ that sets free. So that's what led him into full-time preaching ministry. And from what he witnessed time and again was that the insecurities, the depression, the anxieties of people were the leading causes for so many of the physical breakdowns that people were experiencing. So many. And the things that they were coming to him for medical attention for. People came to him desperately hoping that medicine and superficial solutions might deal with their deeper struggles and suffering. They came to him. He was a doctor. And he couldn't help them. But when he became to Christ, he realized the deeper issue. So Lloyd-Jones came to recognize what people needed the most was not a superficial remedy that dealt only with symptoms in the body, but that they needed a change of heart and a renewed spirit in Jesus Christ. So Lloyd-Jones spoke directly to this and the false way that syncretism would view the world. And there's a quote from him. The terrible, tragic fallacy of the last hundred years has been to think that all man's troubles are due to his environment. And to change the man, you have nothing to do but change his environment. That is a tragic fallacy. It overlooks the fact that it was paradise that man fell. Wow. Don't change the environment. It's not going to be some simple, shallow solution or syncretism that somehow will create relief and comfort where man really needs it. No, no not at all. Lloyd-Jones is on to something here. He was tracking this singing here in Psalm 16, verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So the real problem with the world today, and with all the human condition, is not primarily physiological or psychologically defined. Okay? The multiplication of human suffering and sorrow are all born of human sinfulness and the syncretism that multiplies sorrows. Always. Now, David is not saying here in alleging and, and proposing that in verse 4 that there aren't problems or diseases that will come to us. Of course, there are, there are real physical problems we're going to have to endure. Things, real sufferings that Christians will have to go through that aren't connected directly to our sinful syncretism. Of course. That's just some of the afflictions and things that God puts in our, on our property, like cancer. Things that are not necessarily or at all connected to our personal sin and what we've done in the syncretism. But, however, David, along with Martin Lloyd-Jones and a host of other witnesses, will go on to show the primary concern for us all when we're facing personal breakdowns into insecurities, into fear, panic, anxiety, depression, also into physiological symptoms. As a result, the answer is not to change our circumstances or to reach for psychotropic meds as a mainstay. However, rather, the answer is given in this psalm and through all the scriptures. So our, multi- our, so- our sorrows will multiply in the false path of syncretism. That's what David's promised here. They will multiply like rabbits, evil killer rabbits. And may the Lord grant us clarity to understand to wherever our feet might be strayed. Move on. So receive the Lord and His boundaries as your only good, and you will receive life with joy. You will receive life with joy as you walk in His paths. Because this is the better way, the far better way, verses 5 through 11. It's not the way of syncretism. This is the way of faith that David outlines for us. So keep to the lines that God has drawn. Don't walk the false path. Don't go to the way of, of pragmatism and whatever works to make you feel better, right? No, don't do that. That's idolatry. That's syncretism that multiplies your sorrows and griefs. No, keep in the lines that God has drawn. 
the ancient boundaries that he placed. Keep to the laws. So it's in this final here in verses 5 through 11 that David beautifully outlines the pure joy, the blessing of keeping within the lines that God has drawn, keeping to the path of life. And this is up and against what we saw in verse 4. It's up and against the gross and ugly alternative of multiplying sorrows. That's gross and ugly. Syncretism is just gross and ugly. Let's be honest. Gross. But yet we have something infinitely better. Something far better than that. So how do we keep to this way? And that's where there's several commitments that David is going to spell out for us in these verses. The remaining part of the psalm, we're going to kind of rush through here. As we do a quick, this is like we're, we're sprinting through the, around the property right now. So hopefully it's not too quick. David speaks first in verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. Echoing what David already said in verse 2, he said, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So, so David here has, has declared that the, the Lord is the center of his, purpose, his pursuit and his purpose in life. And that he's fully persuaded. There's nothing else, no rivals, nothing else can be on the top of that hill. Only God, Yahweh, no other God shall have his place. No other rival, not even second place. Just Jesus, only Jesus. And that was David's testimony. That is David's proclamation of faith here. And the, this life of service and love to God, this exclusive pursuit of God, is also very much resigned to whatever God gives to us. It's whatever shape and size that God sovereignly and fatherly determines for you and for me, the love that pursues God as God alone and the good that only God can give, that faith also resigns humbly to receive from the Lord's hand whatever you have. Whatever your map looks like, whatever your landscape, whatever the hills and the valleys, whatever the shadows and lights, whatever the joys and sorrows, we all must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We must for the, op, the, only, the only alternative is to multiply sorrow. And I hope that's loud and clear from this psalm. Either we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, or we receive His opposition, and we multiply our sorrows. We either coalesce, we resign, because we trust and love God, and say to God, Lord, You are my only good. It doesn't matter what You do with my life. You are my only good. And I will stay with Jesus Come hell, come high water, come what may. Give me Jesus. Take the world. Give me Jesus. That kind of declaration, that seizing of faith is what pleases and honors the Lord. And we see in verse 5 also that David says, you hold my lot. It's this picture. It's, it's, it's very clear that there's this lot. And in fact, I mean, we, could, we could look at it several ways, but the lot in this case is the casting of the lot. On the, you know, the lot, dice, ancient way of, of reaching decisions. You know, if you had to decide between several things, they would have a lot that would cast the lot like a dice, and they would make a decision. And God actually prescribes that in Scripture in the Old Testament. But David's saying here that God is the one who holds the lot. And it's every cast is from the Lord. It's every decision. Roll it. You might think the snake eyes was a coincidence, but no. God holds the lot. You do know what snake eyes are, right? I realize that's awkward if you don't know what that is. Snake eyes is when you roll two ones. Okay, just be clear. Okay, 
There we go. We all know we're all good with, with playing craps now. We can all go out and go gamble. I'm not encouraging you to gamble. Stop it. But if the lot is cast, whatever the decision of that lot, it is from the Lord. That's, what, that's kind of what that's hearkening to, right? That God is the one who holds it. God is the one who decides it. And when that lot is actually, it pans out when things happen, when things pan out, it's from the Lord, whatever it is. Again, I need to remind you, it's not the devil who decides or holds that lot. It's not the devil, people, sisters. And it is not family of origin that it is determinative in your experience in this life or your genetics or whatever. It has nothing to do with your circumstance. There is no fate. We are dealing with a sovereign and good father. We are dealing with a God who holds the lot in his hand. He is a king. And nothing happens apart from his decision. We need to seize on that in faith. Seize. Grab it. Don't let go. God, this is from you. And I love you. And I trust you. And Jesus, you're worth the trouble. You are worth the trouble and the grief and the affliction of whatever this is right now. You, Jesus, are worth it. And I'm going where you lead me as long as you're with me. Attitude of faith. That's what we're called to do as we walk this property line. And David declares in such beautiful words, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And this is the lot that God gave to David. Now, let's be clear what David means by that. He's not thinking of his being a wealthy, handsome, well-off, well-adjusted, married to several wives, and concubines having the good life, that that equals the good life, that equals the beautiful inheritance. That's not what David says, right? The whole psalm tells us, it's his testimony of what he is holding to as the inheritance from God. It is God himself is his inheritance. What is the beautiful inheritance that we share, David? Regardless of our station, we might be paupers in the dust, doesn't matter. We share the same inheritance in God Himself, right? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That is the pleasant place that David has camped out on. And that, my sisters, is what God is calling you to pitch your tent and to stay put. Don't move on from there. Because if you do, you will multiply your sorrow. You will multi, I promise you, sister, if you move from that position of submission and desire in God alone, you will multiply your sorrow. Seek whatever relief you seek, whatever distraction, whatever devices or entertainment, seek it all. It will only multiply your sorrow. So may God grant us repentance if there's any addictive behaviors going on here tonight. Are you addicted to looking at your phone? Are you addicted to alcohol? Are you seeking escape through entertainment? Trying to deaden the sense and the pressures and the feelings and the pains of life. Is that your lot right now? Are you trying to insist on taking hold of that lot? Gain control and get anesthesia from your situation? Well, may the Lord grant you repentance. You're only going to multiply your sorrow. So... We conclude, and this brings us to the final moment here in verse 11, because we, the Lord, and His boundaries is our only good. Walk with Christ, our good. 
even if through darkness. To find relief from suffering without Christ is terrible. If you seek relief without Jesus, it's terrible. It will destroy you, right? To have God as our only hope and our only good brings life and leads to joy and to our flourishing. To see our dreams fulfilled in this life apart from God would be hell. It will become hell for you if we seek out our dreams and hopes in this life apart from God. So sister, join with me and look to the future. I pray that even where the property, wherever God has you, go to the, go to the highest elevation of your little, I don't care if you live in a postage stamp sized property that God gave you. It doesn't matter. Right? The size doesn't matter. If God's there, you have everything you need. Right? Isn't that true? Wherever you are. Whatever that property is, go to the highest point of that property. Look over the forest and the trees. Look beyond and look with me at verse 11. This is what he says in closing. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brother, sisters, uh, do you see that the lines that God has drawn over your life are good lines? Do you see it? Do you see where those lines are leading? Verse 11 shows us. It's like a runway of an of a airliner coming to the dark sky. You see the flashing lights. It's directing. It's pointing. It's urging us onward. Fullness of joy. Everlasting pleasure. Fullness of joy. Everlasting pleasure. It's at His right hand. It's in His presence. And as we press on, as we look forward to that moment, the fulfillment, the consummation of the ages, we long for that moment, not to see loved ones. I mean, it would be great to see loved ones. That's not what we're looking forward to. Christian heart, don't forget. Our glory, our heaven is Jesus Christ. He is our only good, our only hope. We long for heaven. Heaven's not going to be a harp-strumming exercise on clouds. It's going to be fullness of joy in the presence of Jesus Christ, everlasting pleasure at His right hand. That will be glory in heaven, and that heaven will come down to earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, and in that place there will be no sorrow, no more sin. And the boundary lines will be immense. Immense. The glory of what is to come. Sisters, think about it. Press on through the hardship you're going through. What you're going through cannot be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in Jesus Christ. What your faith cannot be be compared to Jesus, and He is worth it. Lest we forget, He is worth it. And let the Lord, by His grace, rest restore that to our hearts, the fear of the Lord, the desire for Jesus, that He alone will take the center and will take what we would seize and not